Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, where we discuss digital transformation and emerging technologies in healthcare. Here, some of the most innovative thinkers and leaders in healthcare and technology talk about how they are driving change in their organizations. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty. It's a very special occasion for us today. It's our 25th episode. It's my great privilege and honor to introduce my guest for today, Ed Marks, CIO of Cleveland Clinic. Ed, I want to start by mentioning you were our very first guest on this podcast. I greatly appreciate your support. Welcome back. Thank you, and I'm I'm honored to be back and to have been your first. I, I've enjoyed, I think I've listened to most of those 25, and, and I think it's an excellent resource for other leaders. Thank you very much. Uh, it's very kind of you. So, Ed, uh, I wanted to start with this. You've had two major health events in the past 12 months or so. You've blogged about both events in an extraordinarily candid way. Would you care to tell our listeners a little bit about what you went through? Yeah, it's it was very strange. Both of them were surprises. If if people know much about me, I'm pretty healthy individual and undergo a lot of routine testing just because I want to stay at the top of my game. My coaches make me do so, and my wife certainly makes me do so. And you know, in May, let's see, April, March, March of 2018, I underwent an executive physical. And for those who've ever had one, it's pretty much an all day affair where it's very intensive physical, as opposed to, you know, a 30 minute physical you might have with a provider. Typically this is all day long with multiple providers doing multiple tests. And out of that, they're like, Ed, you're in the top 1% in your age group in terms of health. And so, you know, it's surprising that that next month I'm in a race. I race for a pretty distinguished team and I was in the national championships and I had this pressure in my chest, just as I'd always read about or heard about signifying a heart attack. And I was like, no, there's no way I could have a heart attack. I'm too healthy. And I was able to keep running and I did a lot of, just for the sake of time, I won't go into all the details. So I, I kept running and which was somewhat foolish, but somewhat saved my life. And I reached the finish line, made the team, and check myself into the medical tent where using technology, they figured out pretty quickly I was having an LAD or what's called the Widowmaker heart attack, pretty much instant death. And thankfully, I was still able to breathe and my heart was still partially functioning. So I got taken to a hospital where they put in a stent, cleared the blockage from my heart and immediately felt better. And you know, through digital means, and maybe we'll talk about it in a minute, I was back 90 days later racing in the world championships. So it was really weird, though, right? Because there was no lifestyle reasons for it. It's completely unexplainable. And so you never know in life things can happen. So you always have to be prepared, both personally, professionally, and, and so forth. And then, you know, after a year, I had my year checkup of April 2019. The physician took me off my drugs. I was completely changed my diagnosis from the heart attack because they said that this was just a once in a, a billion event. There's no heart disease. There's nothing. And so I was pretty happy. And he says, but you know, I'm really concerned about your PSA score. And I said, I'm not concerned about it because 
I've watched it over the years. My physicians have watched it and said there's nothing to be concerned with just to keep watching it. He says, no, I, I would go see someone. So thankfully, you know, working in a health system, I have easy access and talked to the chair of our urology institute. And he invented this new test a year ago, which is much better than a typical PSA test, has predictive analytic capabilities. And I took it. And the next morning, he was sitting in my office at 630. I thought, that's not a good sign. And uh, he said, Ed, you know, based on this test, you have an 85% chance of prostate cancer. I was like, what? And so he said, what are you doing now, basically? And I said, whatever you want me to do. And I had a biopsy done and got the results back quickly. And sure enough, I had level seven prostate cancer. It's, they don't do stages like in typical cancer, but it's a level between zero and 10. Seven not, is not good. If you have below seven, you know, you can do other treatments, but seven you know, if you want to be sure and get rid of the cancer, you get prostatectomy. And that's what I ended up doing. And thankfully, a couple of days later, we were notified I was completely cancer-free. Oftentimes, you still have to go undergo radiation and chemo. But because of the radical prostatectomy and the lab work around that, I was completely healed. So it took a little while, a few weeks to get back into the normal swing of things. But I'm back running and racing. have had three races this month already and uh, ready to compete. So it's been weird. But I learned a lot through this. Wow, that is some story. And uh, firstly, I want to thank you for sharing that with us. It's so personal. And for our listeners, I also want to mention that you blogged about this extensively in a series that you titled, uh, You Have Cancer. And uh, you went into a lot of things. It's not just about yourself, but you talked about the whole system and how it works. You expressed a lot of gratitude for the caregivers. I was I was astounded at how you managed to track every single individual who was involved in your care, and you mentioned them all by name. So kudos to you, Ed, and uh, again, you know, extraordinary story. And firstly, I'm glad that you're fine and uh, glad that you're back on our podcast. Yes, <laughs> it definitely beats the alternative. And I appreciate the fact that, Patty, you were one of very few friends who came to visit me just to say hello and show your support. And, you know, you travel a great distance to do that, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so you now have a unique perspective of the healthcare experience uh, by virtue of being a patient in uh, one of the leading health systems in the country where you're also the CIO. So tell us about how you saw the two worlds converging, the world of the CIO and the world of the patient. How did you see that converging during your recent experience? Well, it was pretty amazing, and I'm so thankful to be part of the Cleveland Clinic. I know there's amazing healthcare organizations around the world. I'm glad that in the two areas where I had an issue, we we're number one in the world, cardiovascular and, and neurology and kidney. And so I was very fortunate in that regard. So, you know, in the first one, it really doubled down on my passion for digital technologies and how we can impact people's lives in a positive way, their quality of life, as well as saving people's lives through digital. And so I became the things that I was an evangelist of, I became a patient of, and that's digital. So in the heart attack example, you know, we had a little cardio device, uh, attach it to the iPhone, it immediately had an EKG reading. That EKG reading was sent to the hospital in a waveform, and they knew immediately what to do, what we needed to do. They then took that image, this was in South Carolina. They knew I was part of the Cleveland Clinic, they sent that image to the Cleveland Clinic. By the time my five, 10 minute ambulance ride was finished and I was 
about to enter the cardiovascular, the cath lab, you know, the images had been read by Cleveland Clinic, head of cardiology, and as well as, you know, the local uh, very fine uh, interventionalist. And then afterwards, through Bluetooth technologies for anything from pulse through heart rate to blood pressure to weight, everything was transferred electronically, digitally, directly into my record. And as a result, my clinicians were adjusting meds in real time. Normally, you might have a four-week or eight-week follow-up appointment. They take one blood pressure and then say, oh, maybe we should adjust your drugs. But because this was all real time, they would get alerts all the time, and then they would make adjustments accordingly. And that's what enabled me to get back on my feet so quickly. You know, Like I said, 90 days later, I was competing in the world championships. So it really makes a difference. And it's the same learning how innovative we are as a culture. So this physician, the chair of what we call Guki, Glickman Urology Institute, Kidney Institute, he invented this new blood test, you know, to give predictive capability as to the presence of cancer. And so I'm just thankful that I had access to that and I saw it at work. And then, you know, going through the whole OR experience and watching all the safety, you know, all the huddles, I was very, I paid a lot of keen attention because I'm exposed to this every day. I participate in huddles every day. And I was very keen and listening in and and observing just how we practice what we preach. And then it just, you know, doubled down again on my commitment to evangelism of digital because it saves people's lives, including my own. You mentioned all the ingredients of the ideal experience where data flows freely from one part of the country to another, or I should say one provider in one part of the country to another provider. It flows seamlessly and they're able to you know, pull it up and make real-time decisions or interventions at the point of care. Yours is an ideal experience. Of course, the healthcare as an industry is still maturing uh, to reach that same level of consistent experience across the entire healthcare ecosystem. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, Cleveland Clinic has embarked on an ambitious digital transformation program, which started last year. And I was fortunate enough to be a part of that when I worked with you. Can you tell us uh, how you're defining digital today and where you are in the journey? Yeah, so I can't say that we have an official definition, but the one that I'm putting out there right now and testing the waters with is leveraging technology to produce seamless experiences. So we like to be very short and succinct with what we do. That's six words to me that pretty much explains digital. And it is a major emphasis. I believe in our next board meeting, our emphasis will be sort of on our digital transformation, where we are, where we're headed, and having some sort of definition is very helpful. And then we give some additional definition around that, but that's sort of the high level definition. And then the rest of the definition, there's sort of four main adjectives, if you will. And these are all surrounded by or supported by, or let me say it this way, the adjectives support are four corners of who we are, and that is about the caregiver, about the patient, about the community, and about the organization. So it's all strategically aligned with the organization strategy. So, and digital transformation is key to making our organizational strategy a reality. Right. And my firm's research uh, seems to suggest that most healthcare enterprises are in early stages of digital transformation. In fact, most health systems are pursuing digital as maybe a set of standalone initiatives as part of either a digital innovation 
program or as a telehealth program. And in some cases, they simply default into whatever their electronic health record system provides as an out-of-the-box functionality. Very few are taking an enterprise view of the digital strategy and roadmap as you are doing today at the Cleveland Clinic. So firstly, do you agree with the general assessment of the marketplace and how do you see that changing in the next 12 months? Yeah, I think we're early stages, you know, healthcare typically behind other industries. So what you're seeing is pockets of brilliance as opposed to sort of an enterprise strategy. That's just how things develop and innovate. You know, you think of some new ideas or just sort of pop up and then eventually you get to the level where you start wanting to tie those things together. And then you mature to a point that, you know what, rather than taking that approach and having these pop-ups that you try to add, all you're doing is adding complexity by doing that. Then you're like, you know what, let's take a step back. And I think that's definitely where we are. So we have had pockets of brilliance for years doing some pretty nifty things, really important things, and I'm glad we did them. And now we've matured to the point of we're taking sort of this enterprise approach to digital transformation, making sure that it's in complete alignment with our overall organization strategy. In fact, if you look at our organization strategy, it cannot happen without digital transformation. It's one and the same. So that's been our approach, but it's a maturing process. I think it's hard to get there right out of the box. It's almost as if in order to push the culture a little bit, for most organizations, you're going to have to have these pop-ups, these pockets of brilliance that sort of set the standard and say, hey, look, it's, it's okay, it's safe, let's go ahead and move this direction. So I think it's just part of an evolution. It's definitely not a negative reflection on any particular organization. Right, right. And it's just the current state as it is. You mentioned a little earlier that your one-line simple definition of digital transformation is using technology for seamless experiences. Now, technology obviously has a very big role to play in digital transformation. However, there is no such thing as an enterprise digital platform, which means that enterprises have to, and digital leaders have to be thinking about building their own digital platforms. What would you advise digital leaders? Yeah, you know, we went through the same thing. It's like, okay, we have these pockets of brilliance, we've got this new strategy for the organization. How do we support that? And I'm a very visual person. I think many people are. And so it took us a few iterations, but we actually, on one slide, created our digital platform. So we basically, again, took those things that are most near and dear to our organization right out of our strategy. And then we said, what is the underlying technology that enables these things? And so we identified those things. And then we even added some of our, I'll call them vendor slash partners to them that are providing some of those support areas uh, for us. And then we could say, look, we actually have a platform. And you know, then, then people get more engaged because they can look at the platform and it makes it more real and then they can help make it better. You know, We always talk about how we iterate on things. And so we went through a process of iteration and making it better. And, and so we have a pretty robust platform now. So when someone says, hey, what is your digital platform? I can actually show them a digital platform, and it's aligned with our organization. And it helps It helps my peers, right? Because oftentimes they'll be tempted to go run off after a specific technology. And I'm like, hey, wait, let's look at our digital platform and see how that fits in. How does that fit into virtual health? How does that fit into experience and engagement? And these are the different objectives for each of those. And here are the primary vendor partners that we're working with. And so it's a very helpful tool. And so would you say you are uh, pretty much complete in that process or are you still putting some pieces in as part of your digital platform today? 
Yeah, you know, one is too a small a number for greatness. You, you can't go this alone. This is not a solo trip. I think in the right. past, you could do things by yourself, but not today. And it depends on your organization too, right? We're a global organization. So we need a global partner to help us. And so we've identified a small handful of potential global partners. And so when you look at our digital platform, there's probably out of, I want to say, 30 sub components of our digital platform, 20 of them will probably be filled by a single partner. And I think that's important because everything's so integrated. I don't want to make things more complex than they need to be. I believe in simplicity. And not only does it increase overall value, but it drives down costs and it's easy to understand. So it's easy for other members of our organization to understand why we do the things that we do, how they're all interconnected. And then we can leverage because of the scale of these sort of relationships, you get a lot of benefits. You get a lot of backward investment into your organization. And you know, if you align with the right partner, you can really do wondrous things for your community. Or as I mentioned, you know, for us, it's more on a global scale, uh, but you can do wonderful things. And it's almost an ethical imperative that if you have this great product or service, and we believe we do in specifically in healthcare, then we want to share it with as many people that we can in an easy to understand format. And by having a partner, sometimes you can do those things a lot quicker. And I think you provided a good uh, thumb rule, if you will, if you have about 30 components or so that need to go into what you would describe as a digital platform, about two-thirds of those components are going to come from a very small handful of uh, strategic global partnerships. And the rest, of course, you're going to go for best-in-class technologies or very specific technologies, as the case may be. That's a great uh, thumb rule, at least something that people can uh, relate to. Switching topics here, let's talk about the organizational structure for digital transformation. You mentioned earlier on, too, that it's about collaboration. You know, no one can do this alone. It requires teamwork. It's you know, stakeholders within and outside the organization. Again, our research indicates that when it comes to the digital leadership role, there is quite a lot of variation within the healthcare industry. For the most part, digital leadership seems to fall on the CIO today. However, a number of leading systems have also appointed leaders who are dedicated to just that role. And in some cases, they're even coming from outside the industry. So can you comment on this trend? Can you comment on what the emerging trend as far as the org structure is concerned for a digital transformation to be successfully executed by, by healthcare enterprise? My perspective for me, I'm less concerned about organizational structure as I am the person filling a particular role. So I think if you have the right CIO, you don't necessarily need to also have a CDO. Now, it really depends on that person. I always say disrupt or be disrupted. So if you're a CIO and you're of a traditional mindset, traditional skill set, you're going to be disrupted. And so your organization is probably going to have a CDO, or if not a CDO, other people sort of leading the digital transformation. But there's no reason as a CIO that you can't you know, be both the CIO and help lead digital transformation. You know, again, it's a skill set, it's a mindset, and it's really about collaborating with your peers. So that's why I don't really care where it sits. It's really about, you know, you could put me anywhere. It's really about, about being a collaborative leader that you collaborate with nurses and physicians and other clinicians and strategy and business development and finance, you know, the, the whole thing. This, the second thing I would say is I am very much supportive of individuals coming from outside of healthcare. I think one of the reasons our growth has been retarded is that we've become very insular over the years. And it, you just look at some of the policies that you see when it comes to hiring, and it says, must have 20 years healthcare experience. Why? 
if healthcare is behind, why do you want 20 years of healthcare experience? I'd rather bring in people and have a good healthy mix from outside and inside. So maybe get someone from manufacturing or someone from finance or entertainment, some more progressive field, and then have them as part of your team. And, and that diversity makes for innovation, which makes for digital transformation. So I'm a big believer in pulling people from outside IT, but again, not outside IT, but outside healthcare. Again, though, it's not one or the other. You can be all those things. You can be that CIO that has a fresh mindset, fresh skill set, collaborates, and at the same time brings in people from outside of healthcare into your organization to make it stronger. So you can do all those things. Yeah, that's very well said. Coming to the question of the investments that are required, obviously, digital transformation is a multi-year effort. And there are significant investments that uh, enterprises have to make, and they are making across the board. Now, the significant amount of IT budgets or technology budgets in healthcare are consumed in maintaining legacy environments. And you hear of some of these big numbers, and somebody has to upgrade an EHR system, for instance, or somebody has to upgrade their infrastructure, for instance. A lot of that goes into just upgrading your existing environment. And part of it is necessary because without a state-of-the-art environment, a lot of the digital functionalities can't even be turned on because they just won't work. So how do you kind of trade off between the need for your legacy environment to be refreshed versus the need to invest in future state technologies as well? Yeah, I think there's two things. One is you definitely have to be bimodal. And I'm sure all of us, you know, 90% of CIOs deal with this where you do have a lot of legacy things that you have to take care of and continue to pay attention to. So it's a common problem, and but you can't use that as an excuse. So you also have to be looking forward. And I think about that from a strategy and operations. You know, I need to make sure that I've got the right people making sure everything's operating well, and then looking for the towards the future and then trying to spread investments the best I can depending on my situation. So you got to operate both. It's not like one or the other. That's a definitely a key component. The other thing is to become more and more data-driven. So I believe in data over emotions. And so if I can really quantify the need, if I can benchmark myself, if I can really quantify all that we do. So another example, I mentioned a couple already just now, but another one would be what time is spent? Like, do you do time tracking? And then do you look at the analytics behind that? What time is spent on legacy? What What is spent on growth? We talk about run, growth, and sort of uh, transform as our three buckets. And right. we have an OKR, an objective key result each year that attempts to move 5% of the run into both transform and grow. And so we, we can show that. And then when we talk with uh, finance or strategy or others about investment and you know improving IT, we use data now to show, look, in the last two years, we've increased our spend into areas of transformation and growth, we've been good stewards, give us more and we'll continue to make that transformation. But if we didn't have data, it just did it based on philosophy or our ability to argument in the moment, we'd be in a big trouble. So both being bimodal and then being data-driven helps to overcome that. Right, right. You know, one question that uh, has come up, uh, and I'm sure you've had this come up to you as well, you know, Cleveland Clinic is a big organization, you have a lot of budgets, uh, you know, you're able to make a lot of investments. You have the luxury of taking a longer-term view. But if you're the CIO or a leader of a regional, a smaller regional system or a community hospital somewhere, 
it's a matter of survival on a day-to-day basis because of the nature of the marketplace today. What's your advice for them? What would you say to them if they say, look, you know, this can work for the Cleveland Clinic, doesn't necessarily have to work for us because we're in a very, very different place? Well, two things. One is I would challenge that assumption. Now, I have worked in community hospitals previously. It has been a few years, so I admit that fully. But I think it's just scale. So while I may have more resources today than I did 20 years ago working in a small community hospital, by percentage, I bet it's the same. So by numbers of FTE, for instance, it's much more. But in terms of number of FTE compared to overall number of FTE for the organization, I bet the percentage is pretty close. And I always talk about innovate where you are, scrappy innovation. You do what you can. You can carve out. You'll figure out ways to carve out some dollars to do some transformational things. And then you have to prove yourself. And I recall being in a small hospital back in rural Colorado, and we had very limited dollars, but we took a risk. We spent some dollars and a couple progressive digital areas, if you will. And we helped turn around the revenue, the amount of patients we were seeing, the amount of revenue of the organization. And we proved ourselves and then we got more money. So I sort of challenged the assumption a little bit, although I have deep, deep respect for those who are in that situation and are trying to make a go of it with very, very limited resources. So there's no doubt that that is another challenge. I think that what we're seeing though, Patty, is a lot of M&A. And I think people are realizing the days of of one-off hospitals, today's environment, given government reimbursement and where healthcare is headed, is a very, very difficult task. And so you're seeing a lot of hospitals, and we've purchased a few of those that are more rural, that by themselves, there's no way they could compete. And so by becoming part of a larger, more robust health system, it's not only great for the community and the caregivers that work there, but also the patients. Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, that is true. And uh, also, I think the good news is that there is a recognition that some of these capabilities that you have to invest in for a digital future are really critical for the survival of the organization. And it's not just M&A, but even in terms of the strategic priorities at the highest levels in the organization, I think there is some recognition that we have to make the investments for the future. You know, it just can't be business as usual. It's not sustainable especially as we shift from a fee-for-service to a cabinet model or a value-based care. Yeah. So switching topics again, I want to go back to the question of, uh, you know, you mentioned about leadership and the pool, uh, you know, the people who come from the outside or whether they are from the inside, the kind, of, the kind of capabilities, the kind of mindset and attitudes they need to have to be successful in a collaborative environment. Now, obviously, digital transformation is not going to mean the same thing for everyone in your organization. And many of your current talent pool will have to reskill themselves, maybe with assistance from the organization. How are you looking at this maybe three, five years out? You know that the technology landscape is going to look very, very different from what it is today. The business landscape and the modes of engagement with the patient, the modes of engagement between caregivers is also going to look very different. What do you see as the, the strategic imperative for your team and your talent pool in order to be prepared and to transition seamlessly into the future? Yeah, the first one, and I know this isn't going to surprise you, but it might surprise others. My focus is really on passion. And does an individual have passion of any sort and service passion in particular? And then are they empathetic? It's really about culture. So if you have these things that are very difficult to teach, 
if you are passionate about what you do and you want to be the very best database administrator, for instance, or network engineer, that's what you need. Or if your service, like your heart is all about serving others, those are things that are caught, not taught, that are so important to success because you could have the 10 best database administrators that maybe are clock watchers and not all that interested in what they're doing, what it means, or have, you know, 10, let's say average and, but who are passionate about what they want to do are service oriented, have deep care for our patients and providers. They will outperform every time the others. So we really look a lot to that. But the other things, you know, that we do is we provide enormous amount of training. So we train our people to make sure they understand the latest and greatest in training, what's out there in terms of technology. We expose people. We have our own internal academy for business technology leadership where they're exposed to more technology. We have rounding. Everyone has to spend a day with a clinician where they're exposed to. This helps both on the soft side that I spoke about, but also on the tech side. They're exposed to technology where we are, and sometimes that helps create new ideas for technology and what else we can do to make patients' lives better, our caregivers' lives better, outcomes better, those sorts of things. And then hiring, as we talked about, hiring some team from the outside, from other industries, has proven effective. So I recall, you know, we were trying to stand up enterprise analytics before it was as common as as it is today. We knew payers were well ahead of providers at the time, so we hired the analytic leadership from a payer, and they set us on our proper direction very quickly. So reaching out to other industries that have more strengths is really key. I think one final idea, Patty, that I would have is that we do these exchanges once a year with literally two exchanges. One is with healthcare institution that we respect. The other is with a non-care healthcare institution that we respect. And we spend the whole day with our IT leadership teams together and we compare notes. What technologies are you using? What are you seeing down the road? And then try to learn from them and how did they get training on that? How did they learn about what to do with it? So there's all sorts of methodologies. I don't think there's one specific one, but it's really a matter of, of a healthy mix of all those things. Thank you, Ed. So, Ed, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you again, and uh, you always have a fresh perspective on everything. I appreciate your coming back on the show and uh, look forward to catching up again soon. Thank you again. Thank you, Patty. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Subscribe to our podcast series at www.thebigunlock.com and write to us at info at thebigunlock.com. 